Well, it, certain, it certainly does not send the message that it is okay to threaten or try to kidnap the governor. It might send the message to law enforcement that before you charge one of these cases, before the FBI takes it down, you might want to wait a little bit longer. And so they went in really believing, because I think intelligent, Russian intelligence was telling them, hey, they're going to throw flowers at the tanks. This is going to be great. They're going to love it. I think they were caught completely off guard. We have a core group of guys that are going to be around for the next five or six years. You know, if you, if you look at it, it's going to be a lot of familiar faces th throughout the future in Detroit. We're starting to, you know, lay foundations and, and build relationships that we're looking to build on and win a lot of games together. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top story served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A verdict was reached in the Governor Whitmer kidnapping trial on Friday, finding defendants Daniel Harris and Brandon Concerta not guilty on all charges charges in declaring a mistrial for ringleaders Adam Fox and Barry Croft. Former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, Matthew Schneider, reacts to the verdict minutes after it came down with Guy Gordon. Well, Guy, I think no one can make any mistake that it's a victory for the defense on all charges. I mean, either they were not convicted or they couldn't decide, which is essentially a victory for the defense. And it's up to the government now as to whether or not they want to bring these cases again and charge them again. And that means that everything starts all over again. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Daniel Harris and, and Brandon Concerta, who, who were uh, uh, acquitted today. Daniel Harris was the only defendant that took the stand. Um, a lot of observers felt that that was a mistake. He came off as a hothead, called one of the informants the B word. Um, he was combative, hostile, not a good look, especially right at the end of the trial, that that's when the last things that the jury saw. Brandon Caserta, some of the recorded testimony that the jury heard was him saying, quote, any lawyer that supports a vaccine mandate, decapitate them in their own home. He said, I want Zionist banker blood to drink blood from their skulls. The jury heard this and yet didn't find evidence to convict them. Help me reconcile that for us lay people that are, are a little stunned by both the testimony and the outcome. Well, it not only stuns the people who are former prosecutors, but in fact, I had heard that the defense attorneys trying this case even thought that they were in a bit of a hole thinking that it might not work out for them. And what it shows is that the, the jury decided that the government just couldn't prove its case. Maybe these guys were big talkers. Maybe they hated the governor. Maybe they hated the government in general, and they did want to take those actions. But they just weren't bright enough or weren't have it together enough to actually affect this plot, to actually commit these crimes. They were big talkers, but they didn't actually do anything. And I think that's probably what the jury has concluded. That these are stoners misfits and they and they essentially agreed with the argument from the defense that they were not capable well in the opening statement from the defense they used what they called the stoned and crazy defense that these defendants were drunk and stoned all the time and their ideas about kidnapping kidnapping the governor were absolutely ludicrous and that might have played out now we don't know because no one has spoken to the jurors yet they could have also found that they were entrapped which was another argument that the defense had and oftentimes after a trial, especially if you're the one who doesn't prevail, you want to go in and talk to the jurors if you can. You want to find out what happened, what they thought, and maybe you can find your way to improve your case if you're the prosecution. Because, again, the government might decide that they're going to start all over and bring these charges again against the people who were 
found to have no verdict against them. Barry Croft, Adam Fox, uh, two of those that were considered ringleaders here, um, they did not have the ability to convict them. They were deadlocked on those charges. Um, we heard testimony, uh, recorded testimony again, and this this would have been comic had it not been so serious, where Croft at one point says to his daughter who came in to offer him some Doritos, Honey, I'm making explosives. Can you get away from me, please? Uh, where the other cohorts are laughing in the background, um, at least on the weapons charges. Are you surprised that the jury didn't find enough evidence on the bomb-making charges where they actually had, I believe, video and audio of some of the testing of these devices? That's right. I, I think, you know, I could see it either way on the kidnapping charges. You can see it either way on some of these charges. But, look, the charge of possession of an unregistered destructive device, the charge of possessing the bomb or the or the weapon, either you had it or you didn't, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... That one is a little confusing. I'm not sure how they reached that because there was evidence that they had these devices in their hands. And maybe this goes back to what I said at the very beginning of this case. We really didn't know a lot mm-hmm. about some of these jurors. Some of these jurors were barely questioned at all. The, one of the last persons in the box, he ba- barely was asked any questions, and then he got in. So who knows who that person is? Right. And we might learn more about their sentiments now that they feel uh, free to talk. And, you know, all of this, this story will be continuing to break and to evolve. What did you glean from the questions that the jurors were asking in the in the closing hours of deliberations here? They wanted to see pennies that were supposedly to be used as shrapnel in the in the IED that uh, they were alleged to be making. What do you make of that? And uh, and, and just the, what can we what can we draw from those last questions? So that said to me that they were done with the kidnapping count one way or the other, guilty or not guilty, and they had moved on to the weapons charge. And the, the crime of having a weapon of mass destruction means that you have to have one that is actually going to do some harm. If you have a bomb and you just like to blow up bombs for fun, well, that's not unlawful under that statute. But if you have a bomb that you put pennies in or BBs in, well, that's designed to hurt people. Mm-hmm. And I think the jurors were trying to figure out what happened with that. Did they actually put shrapnel in these bombs? And was that the point of the bomb? Because if it is, that's a destructive device. It's not necessarily something that you're having fun with. Right, right. Uh, we, we, we all remember the Atari trial. Um, this is the second high-profile domestic terrorism case where it appears the government came up empty. What does that say about our ability to convict, or is it the just the sentiments of the jury that you might draw from? Uh, or just the difficulty of this, especially when there's always that cloud of entrapment that may hang over this kind of an investigation? Well, it it certainly does not send the message that it is okay to threaten or try to kidnap the governor. And it doesn't send the message that that type of conduct is allowable in society because it's not. It might send the message to law enforcement that before you charge one of these cases, before the FBI takes it down, you might want to wait a little bit longer until the very, very last minute before you arrest people. Because maybe if the jury had more evidence, maybe if these guys, instead of just casing out the governor's house, got in the car and were heading in that direction, maybe that would have been more for the jury to say, you know what, they really took that step and they really meant it. Because there's evidence here to indicate that the jury didn't think that. I'm going to ask you, I guess, to kind of Monday morning quarterback your former colleagues here. If they are to refile charges against Croft and Fox, 
Are there things that they can do to retool their prosecution that may uh, lead to a better outcome for the government? Certainly. I would request different questions to be asked to the jury. I would request a lot more time in jury selection. And I'd want to make sure that I was explaining more clearly the weapons charges because the jurors, whenever they ask questions, they ask questions because they don't understand what happened. Mm -hmm. They don't understand what happened because the prosecution didn't explain it fully. And so it's a lesson to say, if we're going to bring this charge again, we better have a better job of explaining what these weapon charges were and why they believe the defendants were guilty. When Russia first invaded Ukraine in February, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, and U.S. intelligence predicted the communist country would overtake the capital city of Kiev within days. General Milley has now changed that estimate to a years-long conflict. Are we getting bad intelligence, and are there lessons to be learned for Ukraine from the sloppy pullout of Afghanistan? Former chair of the House Intelligence Committee, now director of Ironnet Cybersecurity, Mike Rogers, on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. I do think that uh, Afghanistan and Ukraine are very, very different uh, because of the conclusions that happened. Remember, the advice that the president was getting, uh, President Biden was getting in Afghanistan was to not do that, to keep the base up uh, north in Bagram to make sure that they could stabilize and continue to provide support for Afghan forces. They didn't listen to any of that. And so had they done it the way I think the military said to do it, uh, we would have had a lot less bloodshed. We wouldn't have lost 10 Marines, candidly. You can't put in, uh, a terrorist organization in charge of the security of U.S. forces and expect any good outcome. I think that was naive and dangerous and it proved to be lethal. So I think that intelligence would have been better had it played out the way the military was asking to do the withdrawal in Afghanistan. Now let's go to Ukraine. Very different. You know, we knew that the the uh, conscription forces of, the, of Russia aren't very good. They're just not trained. So these are people who are forced into military service, uh, who show up, they get not a ton of training, and then they found themselves out in the middle of a, uh, you know, a pretty aggressive fighting for their freedom and, uh, enemy. So there was some indications that they weren't going to do well. But because of the sophisticated weapon systems, I do think analysts got it wrong. I mean, they were they they believed that within that 72 hours time frame, or, or even a little longer that they would have had just overwhelming force, overwhelmed the Ukrainians. So that is a little concerning. I would I would go back if I were certainly the chairman of the intelligence, say we're going to look at this thing step by step and see where we got it wrong, make sure we're not making similar mistakes with other military forces, including China. So what, I mean, looking at this overall, what would you say are some of the reasons that they might have got it wrong, why, why they missed the, the, the mark on Ukraine? Well, a couple of things, and just maybe more detail than your listeners want to know, but I'll give you a great example. So when, you know, we have 20 years experience uh, fighting, you know, doing counterinsurgency uh, fighting, right? Our military is pretty good at understanding how that works out over 20 years. So you take all that information and impart it to the Ukrainians uh, and say, here, we know how to, we know how to fight a counterinsurgency. We also know how to fight an insurgency, and we're going to train you to do that. And a lot of that training happened before the Russians got there. And what they didn't anticipate is that the Russians would cross the border with not some of their best stuff. Uh, and I believe the Russian intelligence was so bad 
that they honestly believe, you know, all those videos where you see tanks lined up, uh, you know, like a parade, right, right. you would never go into uh, any zone, any military conflict zone like that. Never. I mean, you talk to armor officers and they, they just cringe at the thought. And so they went in really believing because I think intelligent, Russian intelligence was telling them, hey, they're going to throw flowers at the tanks. This is going to be great. They're going to love it. Right. And so the commander said, OK, well, then let's go. We're going to drive as fast as we, we can to Kiev and to, and then uh, encircle the town and then take the fight to him. Well, I think they were caught completely off guard by the resiliency of these small unit tactics that we were using, including getting behind their lines, interrupting their logistics flow, killing senior leaders because they came in with no operational security on uh, you know, you, you start having using all of these types of communications. It looks like a blowtorch. If you're looking for those kinds of signals, it made very easy targets for these guys that knew what they were doing. And so I think it was a combination of us not getting it right, what, what they were going to bring over the border and the Russians believing, hey, I'm just going to drive up to the front door. We'll have to kill a few Ukrainian military guarding uh, around the city and then we'll be done. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but it may be that this horse is just still very much alive. And that's why I want to talk about Afghanistan for one more moment here. Uh, Joe Biden, the president at the time and now, he publicly stated in August on a Friday that there was no chance the Taliban would take over as quickly as they did. But by Monday they had. Um, and you're saying that the intelligence highlighted that that might be a possibility did the president then at that time just completely ignore the intelligence that he had and if he did what does that say about what is happening right now is he abiding by the intelligence the so-called experts that he says he relies on or is he going alone is he rogue well uh, you know i wouldn't say it's rogue i just think it's just horrifically naive decision making on their part um they they and candidly there were discussions be careful how I say this. So I think that they did not care if there were lots of casualties in the Afghan fight. They figured Americans just won't care, uh, including abandoning Americans who were there, including abandoning people who stood up against a terrorist organization with Americans. We left them behind, too. Uh, men, women and children who are still candidly still today paying a price for that decision. And I think he thought it was just a political check mark. He wanted out. He was going to get out, didn't care about the consequences because he didn't think America would care about the consequences. Uh, in Ukraine, they continue to have this hardened ideology uh, that group hugs will suffice in a very dangerous situation. And it just hasn't worked out. It didn't work out with the first Iranian deal. They're right back at that. It didn't work out in Afghanistan. They believed if they just pulled out, everything would be merry. Well, that didn't work out either. And here they're arguing, well, if we are just slow about getting equipment that the Ukrainians need, maybe we can talk uh, Putin into a better decision-making matrix. And that's wrong, too. I mean, there are there are pieces of equipment, uh, very technological, advanced air defense systems, uh, not even American made, by the way, where we could get into the country in a way that would uh, help them. I mean, I would flood the zone right now. I don't they're not doing it. I know that uh, last night talked to somebody who's in a position to know said, nope, not happening. I would flood all that equipment right now while the Russians are trying to regroup. Mm -hmm. And I think we'd be a lot better off. They're just not listening to it. 
Hope Springs Eternal every April as Metro Detroiters descend onto downtown for the unofficial holiday known as Opening Day. For all the winter's past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. And those hopes are actually pretty high for this year's Tigers Ball Club with an exciting young group of players, along with some big offseason acquisitions, and manager A.J. Hinch, who after a horrendous start had the team playing some pretty good baseball last year. The 5-4 walk-off win doesn't hurt either. Pitcher Casey Mize, number one overall pick in the 2018 draft, is one of those aforementioned exciting young players, and he spoke to Chris Renwick and Sean Belegian, who were downtown for all the festivities on the Paul W. Smith show. You know, you know, everybody's been saying it for a long time, is we got to get the pitching right. You know, it's been the biggest part of this rebuild. Um, you know, and, and we added the position players, you know, with tour coming up and then some free agent signings as well. But, you know, um, you know, th- there's there's a lot on my plate and, and a lot on Tarek, a lot on Matt, a lot on Eduardo because, you know, we got to get the pitching right. So, uh, you know, we, we know that, you know, we kind of set the pace of the game and, um, you know, as starting pitchers. So, you know, we got to get, get us off to the right foot every game. Um, and, you know, hopefully that could lead to a win. But, you know, we, we know we're going to have to do our job. And, you know, if we do it well, then you know, we think we're going to have a really good year. You know, Casey, on a personal level, I mean, it's not like you're a seasoned veteran or anything like that. I mean, a year plus under your belt. But what have you learned in that time? It's not like you're walking in all bright-eyed either. You know what to expect. What has surprised you the most in your journey up to this point? Um, you know, I've just learned, you know, through experience, you know, like in anything in life. You know, you get more experience. You're going to get more comfortable. You're going to get more, um, you know, familiar with, you know, for me, it's the opponent, and, it, and it's uh, the day-to-day routine. It's um, how long the season is. You know, last year was a lot of firsts for me. You know, 30 starts, 150 innings. It's the most I've ever done in both of those categories. So, um, and it's just, you know, I'm, I'm not sure there's been a huge surprise other than, you know, the, the depth of the big leagues. You know, that there's not a, you can't take a batter off. You know, you got to stay focused, can't take a pitch off. Um, so, you know, it's uh, obviously, you know, toughest competition in the world. So, um, it just takes an extreme amount of focus and, um, you know, to get you through that full season and, um, you know, I look forward to doing that again and more. Casey Mize, kind enough to join us this morning on the Paul W. Smith Show here on 760 WJR Opening Day. Casey, there is an excitement about this baseball team. I, I know you guys have been elsewhere and you're, and you're just coming back to Detroit, but there is an excitement in this town that we haven't seen around here for you guys in probably seven, eight years. What's it like in the room? Are, are you guys are you guys feeling it as well? Do you do you realize you know you got something special in this town's ready to get behind you? Yeah, for sure. We, we share the same excitement, you know, and uh, you know we're, we're we're pumped to see our fans in the stadium, and um, you know hope to put a good product out for them and win some ball games, and um, you know we think we're going to because you know we're just excited as fans, and you know can't wait to get going and win some ball games because we think we had all the pieces to do it, we got the mindset to do it, everybody's in this thing to win, so. Um, you know, we're just ready to get going. Uh, I really like the numbers from last year, uh, a 3.71 ERA and 30 starts. Um, and, and I thought it really was a vast improvement on just the few games that you pitched in in 2020. And then, look, I, I think as a young pitcher, uh, you know, A.J. Hinch, the manager, obviously saw uh, some of that. And, and maybe you were on a bit of a pitch count. But but I'm curious to know what your role is this year. I'll tell you, as fans, we're ready to see Casey Mize full bore, and and I guess how what's the plan going forward this year? Is it is it going to be kind of on a on a pitch by pitch basis, game by game basis? Uh, how how do you envision your role going into the season? Yeah, I mean, I haven't been told of any restrictions or limitations. You know, I think it's full steam ahead, and um, you know, time to establish myself as, as a starter that 
is going to log innings and be consistently great. You know, I think I was pretty consistently good last year, but it's time to take a step forward and, and be great. You know, and I think I put in the work. Now it's time to just go execute on the mound and, um, you know, be, be a really quality pitcher in this league and you know, looking forward to, you know, taking that challenge head on and trying to accomplish that. Casey, you have uh, a new uh, battery mate as well. What does a seasoned veteran uh, do uh, behind the dish as well? Of, of course, we're talking about your new teammate, Tucker Barnhart. Yeah, he's going to lead us from back there. You know, I think, um, you know, just some conversations we've had and with some spring outings and stuff, you know, I really love throwing to him, really love talking to him and game planning and, you know, picking his brain because he's super knowledgeable and, you know, loves to talk about ball. So, um, you know, just enjoyed having him, you know, so far and, I know we're just scratching the surface on some things we're going to be able to do together. So, you know, definitely look forward to, um, you know, winning some ball games with him and having him back there because, you know, he's uh, you know, he's going to make us better back there for sure. Uh, obviously, um, this team has a strong, strong core of young players. You throw in somebody like Javier Baez uh, to give you that veteran leadership, not only defensively behind you, which I'm sure you'll you'll appreciate as the season wears on, mm-hmm. uh, but but from a leadership perspective. Now, you obviously you being a young pitcher, uh, you, you mentioned Spencer Torkelson already, Riley Green who got banged up, uh, so we'll we'll wait for him uh, to to heal up from that fractured foot. But talk about the young core of players here because Sean mentioned it earlier. There's a huge buzz about this team that we haven't seen in this town in a number of years. Years. And and there is probably going to be a certain amount of pressure on on your shoulders, but at the same time, look if there's if there are a couple guys that we expect to 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 play well and handle that pressure, it's it's the three of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's um you know we have a core group of guys that are going to be around for the next five or six years. You know if you, if you look at it, so um you know it's going to be a lot of familiar faces you know th- throughout the future in Detroit. So we're starting to, you know, lay foundations and, and build relationships that we're looking to build on, um, you know, and, and, and win a lot of games together. You know, we're going to lean on some better leadership for that. And we're going to step into some roles like that, you know, whenever we you know, get more service time and more uh, experience in this league and, and win more ball games. And, you know, we have to earn all that. So, um, you know, all this stuff has to be earned, but, you know, I think we've got to do it and, uh, you know, lay a great, great foundation for, um, you know, w- winning teams uh, to come. Governor Gretchen Whitmer filed a lawsuit in hopes of overturning Michigan's 1931 abortion ban in anticipation of the Supreme Court making changes to federal abortion laws. Democratic Attorney General Dana Nessel has gone public saying that she won't defend the state against the lawsuit. Beth LeBlanc from the Detroit News on The Guy Gordon Show. There's, there's going to be a lot of legal wrangling on all sides of this matter, but essentially, I mean, that that is a question that a lot of people have is if if there is no active prosecution of an abortion doctor under the the 1931 law, if Roe v.ersus Wade hasn't been overturned yet, then how do you have standing to come to court and ask exactly. to, to call it unconstitutional? Now, but what's important to note is that the the law actually wasn't declared invalid. What it was called, it was basically said it was unenforceable in, in to the extent okay. it conflicted with Roe v.ersus Wade. And that's where there's a little bit of wiggle room there that in in the case that so the case that kind of upheld the law, um, that 1931 law was one in 1973, right after Roe versus Wade, when uh, the Michigan Supreme Court came in and said, um, actually, you can use this to to prosecute non-physicians who perform an abortion Mm -hmm. because that's not covered by Roe versus Wade. So. A lot of the, the anti-abortion groups are, are holding that up as saying, look, at the, the law wasn't overturned at that point. Right. 
So there is Supreme Court precedent in that sense. And and that's going to be one of their main arguments in this case is is that Supreme Court decision from from 1973. Yeah, that that will impact the likelihood of success or failure. And I think there were other challenges as well. I I I would expect over the last 91 years that that law was was challenged more than a few times. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the, the other one of note that probably will be used was in 1997 um, when there was a, a challenge to, to one of the extensions of the law um, in terms of informed consent for abortion. And there was a challenge to that. And in the challenge, they, they said, we want the courts to just call this law unconstitutional completely mm-hmm. and then take care of all of these addendums that have been added over the years because we feel it, it conflicts too much with Roe versus Wade. And, and that got to the Court of Appeals, the Michigan Court of Appeals. And the Michigan Court of Appeals looked to the 1973 Michigan Supreme Court decision, looked to the law itself and said, we don't think this conflicts with the Michigan Constitution. Um, that was appealed. That decision was appealed up to the Michigan Supreme Court at the time in 1997, and the Supreme Court declined to hear it. So those are those are going to be the cases really that are are going to be argued in court. Yeah. And both of them were mentioned in the suits that were filed yesterday. Well, and it's interesting because it seems that they want to create a right to obtain an abortion under the, the state constitution. And to do it, they're citing many of the same things that were cited in Roe v. Wade, the right to privacy, equal protection under the law. Those may have been valid in Roe v. Wade, but if this is overturned, they may no longer have the same weight under the state constitution. So isn't that kind of a dubious claim or a difficult claim to make? Yeah, well, yeah, there is there is that aspect of it, um, you know, and, and for for the purposes of this argument, they're looking at Michigan's constitution seemed it are there protections if if the U.S. Supreme Court should say there aren't protections for abortion right. in the U.S. Constitution, can the Michigan Supreme Court say, well, there is those kind of protections in the Michigan Constitution? And that's going to be one of their main arguments. But, you know, one of the things that Right to Life pointed out yesterday is that there are um, pro-abortion rights groups right now collecting signatures for a petition to enshrine the right to abortion in the Michigan Constitution. Right. They're kind of saying, you know, you, you can't have it both ways. Either it's in there or it's not in there. Now, I did talk to Attorney General Dana Nestle yesterday about that, and and she said she believes it, it's in the Constitution, in the Michigan Constitution, but she said, why not just eliminate all doubt by putting it very clearly sure. in there through the petition? So, well, and I'm sure there's a lot of armchair attorneys out there, including this one, who would say if, if it comes down to that and Roe is overturned at the federal level, doesn't that prevail and wouldn't that trump any perceived right to an abortion that someone might try to assert in the state constitution? Um, you know, you could you could say that, but I think one of the main arguments uh, against Roe versus Wade over the years has been that this should be a state issue, that this should be decided True. at the state level. So um, I, I think it, everybody expected that there would be this state level fight once it once or if it gets kicked out of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Talk to me about Attorney General Dana Nessel, because under normal circumstances and in a run-of-the-mill case, if a law on the books is challenged by uh, someone in the state of Michigan, it might fall to the Attorney General, and under normal, normal circumstances would fall to the Attorney General to defend the state or the legislature. She's refusing to do that. 
Um, what was her justification for that? And, and does she open herself up to charges that this is dereliction of duty? Yeah, so that that relates to just one lawsuit that was filed yesterday. The one filed by Planned Parenthood of Michigan was filed against the Attorney General of Michigan. So it named her office in the suit. So she would be the one to defend it directly. Mm-hmm. And usually, like in case, there are cases where Attorney Generals have, um, you know, like moral qualms about defending a law or defending, you know, a certain individual or what have you. And in, in those cases, there are allowances made to create like a conflict wall within the attorney general's office. So basically, in other cases, Nestle has kind of walled herself off from the defense and then had some of her staff lawyers defend it. Right. right. And she just keeps away from it. But yesterday, yeah, she said, I I will not defend it and my office will not defend it. So what happens from there? I mean, this is very unprecedented. I'm yesterday she could not name an instance in Michigan history where an attorney general had done this. Um, There, there have been cases in other States, like during the gay marriage debate, um, there were certain attorney generals that wouldn't defend laws that were on the books. Um, But it is unprecedented in Michigan. um, And, and she expects, you know, somebody's going to defend it is what she expects. But right now that is very much in limbo. So, so what can happen is a court, um, I, I believe if somebody initiated like going to a court and saying she should be defending it, a court can order her to defend it, in which case she would get it like a staff attorney right. to defend it. Or the legislature can intervene and defend it um, if they get permission from a court or a special interest group, if they get permission from a court, right. could, could defend the law. In a historic week for the Supreme Court as Ketanji Brown-Jackson was confirmed as the first black female Supreme Court justice by a mostly party-line vote of 53 to 47. They'll do it for Podsui this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.